0: bibles now if you would to the gospel of matthew chapter 12 matthew chapter 12 it's really good to be back in the pulpit this morning the past couple of weeks as you know i've been at the shepherds conference down in southern california and apart from the time that I get to spend with my family after that conference when we go down to San Diego. Uh, the Shepherds Conference is really one of the highlights of my year. I always look forward to that with great anticipation. I'm already making plans to go to the next one, uh, March the 6th through the 10th, and so that, that's kind of the, the thing that I do now in the month of March, and it's really enjoyable to me. And I love that conference because it's such a, a very serious approach to the preaching of God's Word. Uh, there you don't find uh, any fluff in the preaching. It's not jacked up and hyped up. It's not, uh, not really supposed to be... Uh, something that gets your emotions stirred up, but what you hear there is just really solid exposition of the text that the preacher presents. And when you come away from that, the listener has a sense that God has really spoken, that God has spoken through his word. And you just see the importance of good theological concepts. If there is a downside to pastoring a church, it is that I don't get preached to Now at home, my wife preaches to me quite a bit, but I'm like a lot of you, when you listen to my sermons, you don't pay a whole lot of attention, and uh, sometimes that gets me in trouble, but preachers do need to be preached to every now and then, and that's one of the reasons why that, well, I go to the Shepherd's Conference, but Many times during the week, I'll I'll take my earphones and stick them in my ears and download a, a podcast of one of the good ministries around that has good, solid Bible preaching, and I listen to that because preachers need to be preached to. Now, it's good to hear sermons in that way, but there is nothing like being among 3,500 men listening to good, solid preaching. And if you do find an emotional side to that, it's just the emotions that Gary spoke about just a moment ago. Singing a song like uh, like we just sang, that Martin Luther song, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. You know that 's just amazing to hear that sound that comes out of those of those men as they 're all together singing those songs so that, that if there 's an emotional side to it, that might be it but and, and it could be the emotions of just hearing god 's word preached in such a just a really a solid way of knowing that God has spoken through his word. Uh, one of the things that I learn when i 'm at the shepherd's conference is in some sense how uh, the ministry that they have there reflects. What we have here. Now, as you know, I'm not innovative in the pulpit. I'm not. Uh, I I believe that the way to preach God's Word is to take the text of the Bible and to explain what it says, just like preachers for centuries have done. And I know that the catchword for many people today is the word relevance. You've got to preach something that is relevant, like why the toaster didn't work this morning and and the frustration of a two-year-old that doesn't want to take a bath or something like that, and sermons are made out of such subjects. And some people call that just getting down to earth with the preaching. And and when you do that, you end up with just that earthy sermons. And if that's what you want, Berean Baptist Church is probably not the place for you. And that's because we believe that what is most relevant to our lives today is God's Word. And we take God's word and we explain what God's word said. And just doing that, that will be relevant to you. See, there's nothing more relevant to you than heaven and hell. There's nothing that's more relevant to you than the message of salvation. There's nothing more relevant to you than the scriptures. Like this one that we read in the book of Micah, chapter 6, where it says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what the Lord doth require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The Bible was given to show us how to have a relationship with God, and how to live out that relationship in the holiness and the righteousness that God requires. And so that means that preachers must preach on sin. They must preach on heaven and hell. They have to preach on repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and also to preach what it means to live every day in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. You're not going to find that in potty training sermons. If you need that, go to the bookstore, buy a book on that subject because you're not going to hear that from this pulpit. And one of the reasons that I, I really love being the pastor of Berean Baptist Church is because I know we have people who have a heart to hear God's word and perhaps my longevity here has to do with the interest that you have in this particular type of preaching just exposition of the word so I know I'm not the best preacher by any stretch of the imagination not the best communicator that you'll hear I'm not going to run from one side of the pulpit to the other I'm not going to do backflips off the platform. I just don't do those things. I've kind of got this idea in my head that the further that you get away from the pulpit, the further that you are away from the Word of God, and that works out not only literally, figuratively or whatever, that just seems to be the way it works in many churches, that, that it's the antics, it's the showmanship and all of that. We don't need that. We need God's Word. And just to get down to solid exposition of what God says. Well, having said all of that, you're probably thinking right now, well, all you just said is just a bunch of fluff. When are you going to get down to the Word of God? Well, we'll do that now, okay? Uh, Matthew chapter 12, if you look with me, please, beginning in verse 33. Stand one more time in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 12, verse number 33, Jesus says, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things, and an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment." For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the message today, bless the reading of your word, open our hearts to this, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It's been now two weeks since our last study in Matthew chapter 12, and so I'm going to back up just a little bit. So. You can get your bearings for where we are in this text. The 12th chapter of Matthew is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, previous to this chapter, his ministry was on the rise. He was gaining notoriety for his excellent preaching, for miracles of healing, and probably mostly and most notably for his ability in the spiritual world that is, the ability to cast out demons. In this 12th chapter, Jesus struck a very discordant note with the religious leaders. And that was when he defied their teachings about the Sabbath day. In the beginning of the chapter, it tells us there how that Jesus and his disciples had walked through a wheat field on the Sabbath day. And as they walked through that field, they were hungry. And so they grabbed a few uh, heads of the wheat And they began to eat that, and the Pharisees saw it, and they said that that was a violation of the law. Violation, they said, of God's law, that you can't eat that, you can't pluck those ears of grain or uh, the heads of wheat on the Sabbath day. Well, to the Pharisees, that was a very serious offense. Their interpretation of the Sabbath said that it was not lawful, and they confronted Jesus with it. And Jesus, with his skillful use of the Word of God, his ability in Scripture and with logic, he proved to the Pharisees that they were wrong. And that angered them because it was a put-down. It defied their authority. It denied their position as teachers of the truth. And really, really, the scribes and the Pharisees were a bunch of hypocrites. They were... They were uh, purveyors of their own ideas of scripture and when jesus defied their authority they were determined that they would get rid of him in any way that they could so they began to pot, plot and scheme they had a council they brought the men together and they devised a plan by which they could kill jesus and that activity against jesus came to a head in verse number 22 This is when a blind and dumb man was brought to Jesus for healing. And that blindness and that dumbness, probably deafness as well, was the result of demon possession. And Jesus cast the demon out of the man, and that caused quite a stir. The people saw that, and they began to question, Is this the Christ? Is this the Son of David? Who will do more miracles than this? Will the Messiah do more than this man has done? And that wasn't a clear-cut confession of Jesus as the Christ, but at least it was moving towards this, that they recognized that nobody could do these things if they weren't from God. Well, the Pharisees heard all of that, and they surely did not want this adulation of Jesus to escalate out of control. They saw Jesus do the miracles. They couldn't deny them. They were fully cognizant that a real miracle had been done. They recognized that a demon had been cast out, but they claimed that Jesus was not from God. They said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons, or he cast out demons by Satan. And it wasn't as if Satan was involved with this, but their words here imply that Jesus and Satan were bosom buddies. That he and Satan were from the same stock, that they were in league with one another. In other words, these miracles were not done by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, but these are actually miracles that are done by Satan. And that was hardened, obstinate unbelief. And that was a sin so horrible that Jesus said to them, this is a sin that will not be forgiven. This is a sin against the Holy Spirit, and it carries with it, the punishment of eternal hell fire. Now they couldn't deny the miracles. They couldn't deny that Jesus was skillful with scripture. They couldn't deny that he was supernatural. But they took all of that and they attributed that to the power of Satan. So Jesus said this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and this is a sin that will never be forgiven. Now I want you to remember what we talked about in that last message, that this sin was a very special sin. It's a peculiar sin. In fact, it's a sin that cannot be committed today. There are special circumstances involved for this sin to be committed. The Son of God must be present. He must be incarnate. He must perform miracles. And there must be people that are so hardened in their unbelief that they would say that Satan is at work instead of God. This is a sin that is never pardoned because those that would commit these sins, these particular people that committed this sin, would never ask for repentance. They would never say that they were sorry for this. They would never admit that they had done anything against a holy God. So they're not going to come to God in repentance. They don't want forgiveness. Now make careful note of this, that the unpardonable sin cannot be committed today. But an unpardonable sin can be committed. In fact, any sin that has not been forgiven by placing your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior is a sin that will never be pardoned. And the ultimate chief of all of those unpardonable sins would be the rejection of Jesus Christ as the Savior. So you can't commit the unpardonable sin, this singular unpardonable sin that's mentioned here in this passage in Matthew. But if you die, never having believed in Jesus Christ, none of your sins will be forgiven. And the Bible clearly tells us that you will suffer the eternal punishment of an eternal hell because of those sins. Now that brings us to the verses in our text today and here we find more denial by Jesus of these false claims that have been made against him and he's teaching here that it is impossible for Satan to do good works and if Jesus does good works then he can't be from Satan and the simple message here is that what you do and what you say is an indication of what's in your heart. What you say is an indication of what's in your heart and how you act. And what you say will either commend you or it will condemn you. Now i want to break the passage down over these next couple of weeks. And we're going to show some important doctrine that's taught here in these scriptures. Verse number 33 says, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. What does Jesus mean by that saying? What is all of this talk about trees and fruit? We're going to concentrate today on this first point, which is the tree is the heart. That Jesus is making a comparison here to a tree, and he's talking about the heart. Now, sometimes what we do when we read the scriptures is that we skim the Bible so fast that we miss some very fundamental teachings and these are things that are crucial to our understanding of salvation and this is one of the texts that we find in the bible that reveals that the fundamental problem that all people have is a matter of their heart now jesus often spoke in parables he liked to use comparisons and so here he compares the human heart to a tree Now you can see that a little bit better at the end of verse number 34 where he says, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Now bear with me here for just a moment as we make a distinction. That when Jesus speaks about the heart, obviously he's not talking about the physical organ that's beating in your chest. He's not talking about this organ that sends blood throughout your body. But he's talking here about your thinking. He's speaking of your mind and your will. It's your ability to reason and to think things through. Sometimes in scripture, the heart refers to the emotions of a person. And we use that same kind of terminology still today. We might say something like his girlfriend broke up with him and it broke his heart. And that means he's an emotional wreck. He feels bad. He's very upset about this. But in this particular place, when Jesus is using the tree and the heart, he's talking about the will of man and what man decides to do. And he's talking about the thought processes that control him. The determining factor of what a person is comes out of those thought processes. The way that you act are products, it's a product of your thinking. Now the other day I was having a conversation with someone and we were talking about the immorality that we have in our society today that there are many people that really don't think too much about living together before marriage. They don't think of that as being sinful. And for a young man or a young lady to find someone to date that wants to remain abstinent until marriage, that's a difficult thing to find today. Our society seems to be geared that way. I mean, that's ingrained to our thinking so that people never have a second thought that doing that is a sin against God. And so their heart, their mind tells them, do this. It doesn't matter. It's not sinful. And whatever God says is not really all that important. And that activity reflects what's in that person's heart. Now here the tree represents the heart. So we want to note very carefully, first of all, that the fruit of the tree is the activity of the heart. The fruit of the tree is what's produced by the heart. It's the activities that a person does. It's like an apple tree has apples hanging from its branches. A peach tree has peaches hanging from its branches. So, Jesus is saying here that a bad heart, a bad tree, will have evil deeds hanging from its branches. And a heart that's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ will have good works hanging from its branches. Now, we'll get into this a little bit later on in another message. But this is the way that you can tell which people are Christians and which are not. And it's a way that you can tell if you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ. What you do is to examine the fruit that you bear. And the right kind of fruit tells you whether you have the right kind of heart. And that's very important in the context of this discussion because Jesus is making a very clear comparison to the types of works that he did as opposed to the types of works that the Pharisees did. And what we have here is a double edged sword when Jesus speaks of his own activities and how they're righteous. And knowing what was in the hearts of those Pharisees, he was making a condemning comparison with their works of unrighteousness. Jesus said, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. Now that that statement seems a little bit strange to us in the King James Version because it says, Make the tree good. Now, most versions, though, use similar language. Probably the NIV is the worst of all of the translations on this because it says, Make the tree good and its fruit will be good. And that's just totally misses the whole point of what Jesus is saying here. How do you make a tree good? What this means, it doesn't mean make in that sense, but it means consider this, to think about this. Consider a tree to be good when its fruit is good, and consider a tree to be bad and a worthless tree when its fruit is no good. So Jesus is saying to them, you need to make up your minds about the works that I'm doing. Are they good works or are they not good works? And if they are good works, then it must mean that I have come from God. And if I did evil works, then you would be right. They would be works of Satan. See, the Pharisees claimed that they could cast out demons. And we're not saying that they could. They thought that they could. And they would never say, well, casting out a demon is an evil work. No, they would think that that would be a good thing to do. They're not going to make a claim that they're doing evil works when they cast out demons. Same is true of the healing ministry of Jesus. That's under consideration. Is it good for Jesus to heal people? Well, nobody would say, man, Jesus, what do you think you're doing? You healed this blind man and he's upset about that. Now he can see. Blind people want to be blind. Don't you know that? Deaf people want to be deaf. Dumb people don't want to speak. Didn't you know that? You're upsetting people because you're healing them. Well, no, nobody's going to say that. Nobody would say that. You'd be a crazy fool to say that. We know healing is a good thing. It's a good fruit. And good fruit comes from good trees. It can't be from Satan. Because Satan never does anything that's good. He's always corrupt. He is a corrupt tree. All things that Satan does is corrupt. And then we also consider the source of sickness itself. See, the Pharisees were a little bit mixed up on this. They had it partially right and partially wrong. They were right about this aspect of it, that sickness is a result of man's sin. The reason we have sickness in the world today is because of Adam's fall and the curse that God put upon the whole world. Sickness is a part of that. What the Pharisees had done was to personalize that, and they said, if you get sick, then God's punishing you for sin. If you're blind, then you must have committed a terrible sin and God's punishing you. If you're lame, then you've done something wrong and now God is punishing you and that's why you're suffering. And they went even as far as to say that people that were born blind was because their parents had sinned and they even believed that a baby could sin in the womb. In John chapter 9, there was a blind man brought to Jesus and the disciples asked the question, Who did sin? this man or his parents that he was born blind and so that was just a reflection of this belief that sickness is the result of sin so if jesus healed from sickness what had he also done well according to his reasoning their reasoning he had also gotten rid of that person's sin if the sickness is caused by sin and jesus gets rid of the sickness what has he done he's got rid of the sin that's why they asked the question earlier in the ninth chapter concerning the paralyzed man that Jesus healed. He forgave the man of his sins and of his paralysis. And the Pharisees were aghast when Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven. You know why they didn't like that? Because they said, Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus asked them, Well, what's easier for me to say? Is it easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up, take your bed, rise up and walk. Which one of those is easier? They're connected in the Pharisees' mind. So if Jesus does this good thing of healing, and if he does this good thing of casting out the sins, he must be from God. So Jesus knew that thought about the relationship between sin and sickness, and he proved his point. If he gets rid of sin, if he gets rid of the sickness, is that a bad thing? Is that a bad thing? Bad trees do not bear good fruit. So that's one side that you see the double-edged sword. He's logically showing them that his good activities come from the right kind of heart. So he must be doing the works of God. Good trees produce good fruit. Now on the other side of this, the other side of this cutting edge of the sword condemns the Pharisees. And most of the people probably didn't get this part right away. They couldn't see into other people's hearts like Jesus could. If you go back to verse number 14, it says, then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. And in verse 15, it says, when Jesus knew it. How did he know that? He knew it because he's God. Nobody had to tell him there was a plot against him. You turn back to chapter 9 for just a moment. If you look at verse number 3, Matthew 9, verse number 3, And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, Wherefore do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew there was evil in their hearts. He knew that there was a council that was held against him. He knew what they had decided to do. They were going to kill him. He knew that they were looking for the right opportunity. He knew the devious ways that they would try to pull it off. Their hearts were evil, and what came out of those evil hearts were their evil deeds. Evil activities. The fruit of the tree is the activity of the heart. And so do you see how that condemned them? They certainly knew what was in their own hearts. There was no way that they could defend murder. And so that was a very clear demonstration of the difference between Jesus and them. They were evil in their hearts, and that's what caused them to scheme to kill him, an innocent man. Bad trees bear bad fruit. What else can you say about that? Now, I I, want to stop there for just a moment. And I want to give you a very important point of theology. And we're going to come to more theology in the next message, but I don't want to overlook this while we're considering this verse. Secondly, I want you to see that faith is God's work, not man's. Faith is God's work, not man's. Now, this plain statement of Jesus is that an evil tree cannot produce anything but corrupt fruit. You cannot get good fruit from a bad tree. Well, let's take that for a moment. And let's consider what the Bible says about the human heart. Jeremiah says, remember the scripture, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, Jeremiah said that the heart is desperately wicked. And Jeremiah, he says the human heart is not a bad tree. He said is a really bad tree. It is a desperately bad tree. Now I want to ask you a question. Is faith in Jesus Christ a good thing? How many of you say faith in Christ is a good thing? Well, I think we're all agreed with that. Faith in Christ is a good thing. Now, just like Jesus says here, all are agreed that healing, casting out demons and so forth, that must be a good thing. Well, if saving faith is a good thing, can saving faith come out of a desperately wicked heart? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on that question because I don't want you to be embarrassed if you get the answer wrong. And I don't. I hope that you're not confused by what I'm talking about here and you didn't understand the question. But the theology here is that saving faith cannot come from an evil heart because it's good. The Bible says there is none that does good. That's a very simple concept in Scripture. It's an important theological one. But despite that obvious conclusion, a point that's as obvious as Jesus' point here about good fruit and good trees and bad fruit and bad trees, there are those who say that you have within you the ability to trust Christ out of an evil heart. I'm going to tackle that more later, but there's no truth to that ugly rumor. I mean, there is no way that a person will ever be saved until God changes the heart and gives you a heart so that you can believe. Now, understand this. According to Scripture, you may believe. God gives you permission to believe in him. But it's a totally different story as to whether you can actually believe in him. That's a different matter. You can't until God gives you the heart that you need. So that means that faith is God's work, not man's. We believe because God is the one who gives us that ability. Salvation is God's gift and faith is God's gift. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is not a reward that you get for doing good deeds because you don't have any. Good trees or good works do not produce the faith, I should say. The faith does not produce the tree. The tree produces the fruit. And so the heart has to be changed. The tree has to be changed before the fruit will be good. And it's God's work to change the tree. Now, we need to back up for a minute and consider that this passage in Matthew in the light of Ephesians 2, eight, It's God's work to change the heart. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. But here's a very important point, folks, is that the Holy Spirit may reverse his work. And rather than to receive conviction from your sin for, from the Holy Spirit, it is possible to re, to, for you to receive hardening from the Spirit because of persistent sin. So thirdly, see, the heart is hardened by persistent rejection. This is what happens when the gospel is preached time and time again. The heart grows colder. It becomes harder and harder. If there is no response to the gospel of Christ, then that condition gets worse. And that's what happens when people stubbornly resist the call of the gospel. They get more hardened to it. Their heart becomes calloused. And they're so much harder to reach. Now, in speaking of these children that we singing just a moment ago, do you understand why we want you to bring your children to church? Do you understand why in Berean Baptist Church we have a children's ministry? Do you understand the difference between a child's heart and the heart of an adult? And I make no mistake about this. If you're a parent, you probably know it. Children are sinners just like adults. But children have not had those years of hardening by living in sin. And that's why it's so much easier to reach a child with the gospel. That's why there are more children saved than there are adults. A few weeks ago, I announced that Carson, just seven years old, had trusted Christ. We had him up here this morning. When he was in my office, I asked him, where did you learn about this? When did you start to question this? He says, I learned about these things in Sunday school. I learned them from my parents. They tell me about this. I learned from going to church. See, children have not yet been hardened by sin. And the older that they get, the harder it is to reach them. And when they become adults, they become the hardest of all. And again, that's why you see more children saved than you do adults. And this is why Jesus used children as an example of the way that your heart has to be before you can come to Christ. It has to be tenderized by the Holy Spirit before you'll ever receive Christ as Savior. And so what happens when parents uh, will not bring their children to church, they're doing them a terrible injustice by not bringing them here. They come here to learn in Sunday school. They learn in the children's program. And if you leave them alone to go their own way, they'll just become harder and harder and more resistant to the gospel of Christ. As a parent, what you have to do is to think about their souls. It's far more important than the soccer games that they have, the cheerleading, all the extracurricular activities that that are offered. Eternity, folks, is at stake. Eternity's at stake. So bring them while they're young and tender. Now we see what happened with these people They heard the gospel over and over and they were hearing it from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Not a preacher, not somebody like me standing up giving people the gospel. They heard the gospel from Jesus Christ. They saw the miracles that he did, but they kept resisting that. In the 11th chapter, it started with doubt, it moved to indifference, then it moved further to apathy, and finally in this part of chapter 12, it is blasphemy now. Now they're condemned because of their words, because of what they say. They've spoken against Jesus. they blasphemed. And it's not just the words that, that condemn them. It's what comes out of their heart that shows that their heart is wicked. So Jesus started here with a parable about trees, and that's a reasonable comparison, easily understood. You see, God doesn't want you to be confused about what you hear. People say, well, you've got to give me something relevant, preacher. Give me something that I can really understand. Give me, give me something that's easy for my mind to comprehend. Give me something that relates to my life situation. And I'm going to ask you, what is more relevant than what I've told you today? What's more relevant than your heart? What is more relevant than the very thing that controls your activities every single day of the week? There's nothing more relevant to that. And people still say, well, that preacher has nothing relevant to say to me. This is what the Bible is about. It's about the condition of your heart. It's about what Jesus did to change that desperately wicked, sinful heart into one that is clean and motivated by the Holy Spirit of God. This is what the Bible is for. Now, I would ask you, what have I missed? What have I missed in verse number 33? Is it me? Is the problem simply that most people and most churches are not preaching the truth or don't want to concern themselves with what's being said? Is the Bible the problem? So if I read and explain the Bible and somebody says those are sermons that are not relevant, who has the problem? Me or the Bible? And I think you know the answer. And I think most of you are in agreement with me on this today. And I'm probably preaching to the choir But you see, you have to decide what kind of church it is that you want. What kind of messages do you want to hear? And you have to decide this question, is the Bible relevant to my life or is it not? Now you can decide that what Jesus said is not relevant to your life. You can decide that, is it or is it not? You can decide against him and you can decide against his word. And if you've done that, I can't help you. And God can't help you either. The issue is your heart, friend. Has it been changed or has it not? And I hope you have the right answer to that question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him to take care of your sins? Do you understand what a, what a terrible sinner that you are, that you have offended the majesty, the holiness, the glory of God by your life? That evil heart that you are born with all your life you've defied God. And now he invites lost sinners to come to him. He says, come to me. And you have to make that choice of whether you're going to receive him as Savior. And if you persist in your unbelief, then your heart becomes harder and harder every time that you hear the gospel. And one of these days, God's going to say, no more of that. No more of that. If you won't listen, you will not be saved. I'm not even going to convict you any longer. You can become hardened to the gospel of Christ. This is why we encourage people, today is the day that you need to get saved. Don't walk out of here if you don't know Jesus Christ. Receive him as savior. I pray that God changes your heart so that you can believe in him. Now, I'm not gonna get into the issue today of human responsibility versus the sovereign will of God. The Bible teaches both of those. God is sovereign, but you have to make a choice. God is sovereign, but the message still is you have to believe. God doesn't believe for you. Don't worry about what God's doing beneath the surface. If you hear the word of God and, it's trans- and something's going on in your brain and you're beginning to understand this, do not reject it. Don't turn from it. Receive Jesus Christ today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've read in scripture today. Lord, hearts need to be changed. People need to realize that we are sinners against you. The most fundamental issue that we find in the Bible is the condition of man, why he is lost and how he cannot help himself. None of us can help ourselves. But we implore you, we plead with you, we ask you, Lord, to work in the hearts of people that they would have their stubborn will changed so that they might receive you as Savior today. Lord, thank you for this opportunity that you've given. Work in the hearts of Christians. Help us to evaluate our lives. Is that fruit good? Can we prove to ourselves that we're Christians by what's been produced in our hearts? Speak to us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.